You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, we gather together with brothers and sisters around the world to worship and to praise you, our King who has come as we await your second coming. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus sets the scene for his Palm Sunday entrance by telling a story, by giving a parable. The parable of the ten minas. He has just come from Zacchaeus and from this uh, transformation of soul in Jericho. And he has said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come into this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And while people were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So he tells this story in order to correct the expectations, which were really running high. And you can't blame the people suffering under the oppression of Rome, feeling played by their religious leaders, this throng from Galilee, these pilgrims that had come to celebrate the Passover, accompanying Jesus who they had so much anticipation and expectation. The story goes like this. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Minas was a three-month laborer's wage. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him. We don't want this man to be our king. Now that's quite a revelation of what was on the mind of Jesus as he's about to enter Jerusalem. And there's an historical background to this story. In 4 BC when Herod the Great died, Archelaus, his son, went to Rome to be appointed king. And the Jews sent a delegation after him to dissuade Caesar from appointing him king. So this story is banking on some real history. And Jesus is putting himself in the place of the person of noble birth who has gone off to become king. And in this story, in the meantime, which is what we are in, the meantime as we await the return of Christ. And there's two principal parties in this. The servants, the ten servants who each receive a mina, and the subjects. And the subjects make it very clear. We don't want this man to be king. Well, he is made king. And he returns. 
And he sends for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. And the first one comes and has turned that one mina into ten. A thousand percent profit. And the second servant has turned his one mina into five, a 500% profit. And the noble, who now is king, commends them for the way they had invested their mina. Now, in the story, Jesus is the king. That correspondence, I think, is pretty vivid. And the mina is the gospel investment. What God has given what Christ has given his servants. And in the meantime, in which we now live, we live responsibly, productively, in the light of the gospel. We're putting the gospel to work by the grace of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the king commends the two servants giving ten cities and five cities for the return on their investment. But then a third servant came. And now the parable again reveals the mindset of Jesus in really a profound way. The third servant comes and says, Well, I knew you were a harsh and difficult ruler, looking for profit where there was no profit. I kept my mina hid in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you do not sow. And the master's furious. I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man? taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow, why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? And he said to those standing there, take this guy's mina and give it to the one with ten. And they said, well, he already has ten. And he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now, just for a moment, none of us really want to be that third servant. But it's interesting in the history of interpretation, Luther saw the professing Christian in that third servant. The one who was Christian in name only. The one who liked the surroundings of Christian religion a conservative Christian, one who relished Christian baptism, Christian weddings and Christian funerals, Christian liturgy, Christian music, but who then didn't put that gospel to work and it wasn't transformative. It didn't change the life. It didn't have an impact. It didn't have a witness. And what's ironic here is that the third servant, the professing believer, who doesn't live in the light of the transformative work of the gospel of grace, that servant is treated just like the subjects who say, we don't want you to be king. The story closes with these words. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king, 
over them. Bring them here and slaughter them in front of me. Huh. Jesus doesn't sound very meek and mild on the verge of coming into Jerusalem, does he? And fully aware of what is at stake and of rejection. After Jesus had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. And remember, he asked the disciples to go and find this colt that was in the place that was designated. And Jesus dramatically reenacts Zechariah's prophecy that Israel's king will come to her riding on a donkey. And it's out of the fullness of the Zechariah prophecy, uh, the fullness of the unappreciated shepherd coming, an appreciation for the mourned, martyred Messiah who comes to Israel. It's out of the fullness of that that Jesus rides on a donkey, letting the visual object lesson speak for itself to the people. And people got it at least so far as their king coming from Mount of Olives, which essentially said, here I am. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees who may be a bit like this third servant, say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And Jesus approaches the city and he weeps. And the reason he weeps is because people have rec not recognized the time of God's coming. They haven't recognized that Christ the King has come. Now, there's a variety of types of people in this room right now. Third servants who profess the name of Christ and relish the traditions, but have not put the gospel to work, have not responded to the grace and mercy of God in a way that is transformative. I find myself a conservative Christian. I'm in danger of the third servant syndrome. And then there are those who have yet to acknowledge that Christ indeed is king. They have not gone so far as to send a delegation. We don't want this man serving us as king. But nevertheless, this is why Jesus weeps. Could it be that we do not recognize Christ the King? That's the sober note on this. And the fact that judgment is on Christ's mind. The serious consequences for not recognizing the grace and mercy, the coming King. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Well, let me close with a personal story. Uh, for my college physical, which now was a long time ago, I thought it was just routine and I needed paperwork, paperwork filled out. And 
uh, the physician whom I had known for years bantered with me and joked with me, um, and he gave me a very thorough exam and in the process found a tumor. I felt perfectly healthy. His demeanor radically changed. One moment, humor and banter, the next moment, deadly serious, and was on the phone with the specialist. And actually, two days later, I had surgery. What's sobering about that is how healthy I felt, yet was so seriously sick. And I wonder if there isn't a parallel in the realm of relating to God as well. Life is great, but it's unforgiven. It's filled with guilt, and unless the mercy is received, the consequence is judgment. The second aspect of, uh, of that story has to do with how the doctor informed me that I had cancer, the specialist, that had taken out the tumor and we waited for the tissue results. And I remember Dr. Herbert Magus put his hand on my knee, looked me square in the eye and said, well, you've got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but we're going to do everything we can to help you through this and to heal your body. And from that moment on, I felt I really had an advocate and I think that's what the church should say when it pronounces judgment. It should be like the doctor who puts his or her hand on your knee and says, this is what you've got, but we're going to help you so that you're healed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is preeminently positive. Powerful good news. Transforms lives changes who we are, but there's just deadly consequences for rejecting Christ the King. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.